Hey, this is Johnny from Talking XP, and you are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the previous chapter, I talked a little bit about the city of Silmoral and the surrounding region, all of which make up the Kingdom of Camertine. Zooming in on the city map, we join Yellowfly and Tamlin, who are on their way to the Tower of the City Watch. They're dressed as guards, and their plan is to infiltrate the building in order to plant a medallion in the captain's office. The medallion is the rightful property of Captain Sindwan of the separate Palace Guard, but they plan to hide it in the office of Captain Bellock of the less prestigious City Watch. The idea is to gain leverage over both men. Because the medallion was a gift from Princess Lufasia herself, it has great value. Bellic can be blackmailed by framing him for the medallion's theft, whereas Sindwan can be threatened and coerced simply for having lost it in the first place. Yellowfly and Tamlin are successful in passing through two checkpoints and are hunting for the captain's office when their story is put on hold. This is where we catch up with Shawnee. She has just climbed through the warehouse window, carrying a bag containing the flasks of Alchemist's fire. While Phelan waits nervously outside, she surveys the room and finds that, to her frustration and surprise, it is occupied. Worse, it's occupied by a member of the Weeping Eye Thieves Guild. She fumbles her attempt to creep up on her enemy in silence and ends up drawing the guard's attention. Shawnee makes the rash decision to throw one of the flasks of Alchemist's fire at the rogue rather than face her, dagger to sword. But then the unthinkable happens. Chapter 8. Part 1. Day 2. Just after 4 o'clock. Party status. Shawnee. 5 out of 5 hit points. Perhaps there had been a hairline crack in the glass from banging against the warehouse wall when she climbed it. Perhaps she simply gripped it too tightly, but somehow, impossibly, the flask shattered in her hand at just the moment her arm passed over her head. Everything happened so quickly that Shawnee did not even know it had broken before she was splattered with alchemist's fire that combusted instantly. The blast sent spiraling flares all around her. They ignited the pile of shingles nearby and sent runners of flame up spiderwebs. This was followed by a second explosion as the other flask burst, the glass broken by the sheer heat. The weeping eye rogue who had just reached the top of the stairs could only stare in shock and horror, her sword arm wilting, as a human bonfire suddenly appeared before her and peeled out a scream unlike anything she had ever heard come from a human being before. 
With orange flames roiling about it in a nimbus, the person staggered haphazardly to the end of the loft and slipped off, landing with a crash on the ground 15 feet below. Dramatis Personae Shawnee Perhaps more than any of the others, Shawnee is thief to the bone. She has never known any other way of life, and she has always had to fight to survive. At 21 years of age, she is the youngest of Yellowfly's gang. She has straw-colored hair that she wears loose, and a small, lithe body. She's quick and nimble, equally comfortable with a bow or a blade. Shawnee is flawed, however, inside and out. She wears a scar on her chin, a disfigurement given to her as punishment by her urchin lord when she was a child. She can be contrary, rash, and headstrong. She always leaps before looking and carries around a baggage of regrets for past poor judgment. Her motto is, live for today, because you might not see tomorrow. Shawnee is also a person of ideals, and she follows a very strict personal moral code. Her view of the world is in black and white. Life is a balance of hunters and prey. During her youth, she was frequently exploited and used, and she has no intention of ever being a victim again. Between the Lines Every now and again, Dungeons and Dragons will do something to take whatever you thought was happening, upend it, and dump the contents of your story all over the floor. I envisioned Shawnee's mission having several outcomes, but setting herself on fire was not one of them. Of course, the other thing about a game of D&D is that there is always at least some chance of a miracle. Because thieves are so weak in the BX rules, they have the advantage of leveling up faster than any other class. This episode, episode 8, is that level up milestone, and so Shawnee will reach level 2, but very likely it will be right before she dies. I think I quickly need to explain something about one of the homebrew hacks I use in Tale of the Manticore. I've abandoned the common method of gaining levels by collecting experience points. To be honest, I've never really found it to be a very fun part of the game, and I also think it encourages certain behaviors in players. Experience is awarded in BX D&D by defeating monsters and finding treasure. For a simple dungeon crawl style game, that's just fine. But for something more nuanced, the incentives lead to resolving most problems through violence. Well, there's no need for me to climb on a soapbox here. I just wanted to talk about the method I use on the show. In order to level up, characters must survive a certain number of episodes. In Season 1, I set that number at 10, at middle and higher levels even more. I found the system worked really well, so well that I started using it in group games too. It did need a bit of tweaking though. It was just a little too slow, so I'm slightly reducing the number required and eliminating the need for ever-increasing experience as characters proceed. Instead, the number will be fixed. The second change I want to make concerns where to fix the number. For fighters and clerics, this number will be 9 episodes. For wizards, 10. Thieves will level up after just 8. This is the trade-off for being so weak compared to the other classes. Well, I hope that all makes sense and didn't go too long. Let's get right back to the game and apply these rules. I have a process when characters level up in which I roll for new hit points and also for potential ability score increases. Depending on the class in question, there are often other bonuses such as skills and spells, but 
And I'm not trying to be a fatalist here. I think it might be wise to just roll for hit points at the moment and then make the other rolls if Shani survives, which I sadly think is against the odds. Thieves only get a d4 for hit points on level up, and Shane has a plus one constitution bonus, which she's going to need. I min out hit points at half, so Shane's potential increase here is from three to five points. Here's the roll. Ugh, the dice gods do not seem to care much for Shane. I've rolled another one, so that gets the min out, and the plus one bonus, bringing her from five to eight hit points. Now for the roll to determine just how badly she's been hurt. Each flask of Alchemist's Fire will cause 1 to 8 hit points of damage. I'm not going to make a damage roll for the fall, since I added that as a narrative flare, and she shouldn't be penalized for that. Let's roll these damage dice separately. The first flask, on a d8. A 3? Well, there's a chance for survival here, after all. Anything less than a 5 on this next die, and she will survive. The roll. Another 3! Yes! Shawnee is not burned alive. Amazing. Chapter 8. Part 2. Day 2. Just after 4 o'clock. Party status. Shawnee. 2 out of 8 hit points. Shawnee's burning form dropped off the edge of the loft floor and smashed into a half-rotten barrel full of water. Being directly below her, she had not seen it before when she first surveyed the environment. This barrel had been placed conveniently near the spot under the loft where the various Weeping Eye members who guarded this warehouse spent their long, lonely hours. They also had a chair with a woolen blanket thrown over it and a crate they used as a table. The woman assigned to guard the place today made a point never to drink from this barrel. She had a colleague, who she suspected was urinating in it as a kind of long-running prank. Shane, for her part, was knocked out cold by the impact. The barrel broke with her fall, and the water inside put out the flaming oil that clung to her skin and clothes, though it still raged in the loft overhead. At this point, I need to make a morale check for the Weeping Eye Rogue. She's a low-ranking guild member who's been assigned to one of the most tedious posts available. She doesn't have much experience with the real danger, and watching Shawnee, a young woman of about her own age, burning alive, has made it so she doesn't need to use very much effort to imagine herself being consumed by the fire. I'm going to assign this woman a morale score of 7, which is average. Anything up to a 7 on 2d6 will indicate that she passes her check and will remain in the warehouse to try to extinguish the fire before it can spread. Here's the roll. A 9. She fails her check, and after just a moment's consideration, races down the stairs, crosses the warehouse floor, unlocks the front doors, pushes them open, and runs off. Unfortunately, once the front doors open, new oxygen is pulled into the warehouse. The fire roars fully to life, and soon the whole place is thick with smoke. Cinders start to fall from the glowing timbers from the loft over Shawnee's unconscious form as they creak and groan, threatening to collapse. There are three paths presented to you. Dice Tower Theater presents Dawn of Dragons, a fantasy audio drama. Ambush! For all intents, I should have you exiled. Time to wait. The Sunless. <laughs> Down! <gasps> 
our young heroes bound by love and kinship are forced on a quest to discover the truth behind the magic of dragons and seek those that stole it before the world itself is destroyed by the growing power of the Dark Army. Come with us. Don't just wait here for death. I... I won't lose you, my friend. Take us below them. You'd better answer me. What was your name again? The blue flame has the great risk, correct? Are you sure, Sophie? I foresee a path you can understand, let alone tread. But you will have to walk yourself. I am no stranger to being alone. I I knew it better than anything else. Dice Tower Theater, now appearing on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network. Creator distributed, fan supported. Wake, and remember the first thing you sense, as your first clue. Chapter 8, Part 3, Day 2, A Little After 4 O'Clock, Party Status, Yellowfly, 8 out of 8 hit points, Tamlin, Five out of five. Tamlin tugged on the back of Yellowfly's tunic, and the other man turned around wearing an expression of mild irritation. What is it, Tom? He said that room wasn't the office because it didn't have a lock. Well, how are we supposed to get inside a locked room? They were midway up the spiral staircase of the City Watch Tower, going to the third floor. It was a very tight spot, and Yellowfly had to contort himself awkwardly to face his companion. Since the guard said nothing, I assume it'll be unlocked or open. He turned back around, but Tamlin tugged on his tabard again. What if he just forgot? I didn't think of it. Yellowfly did not look pleased. Damn, this is not the most comfortable place for a conversation. Can we finish when we get to the top? Please and thank you. Without waiting for an answer, he turned and climbed the rest of the way to the third floor. Ahead of the adventure, I drew up a map of the tower, all three floors plus the roof, but I didn't key it or populate it. I'm just going to go with what seems logical. A guard room at the bottom, a barracks on the second floor, and an office plus storage on the third. So what will they find when they reach the office door? I'm going to determine that at random. To keep it simple, I'll roll a d6. On a 1 or 2, the office is unoccupied but locked. On a 3 or 4, it's unlocked and unoccupied. On a 5 or 6, it's unlocked but is occupied by, well, someone. We can figure that part out if the dice point is that way. Here comes the roll. This ought to be interesting. Okay, I've got a 1. Unoccupied, but locked. They reached the third floor and exited the stairwell, which continued on up to the rooftop. A curving hall presented itself, and Yellowfly followed it almost all the way to where it terminated, but he stopped briefly to peer out an arrow slit. That should be roughly southeast, he said to himself. I wonder if... Hmm, not yet. Tamlin, you keep an eye out while I try the door. Tamlin watched the stairs while his leader walked to the door, turned the handle, and pulled. It didn't open. That's what I was trying to tell you. You want to help, just keep a sharp eye out grumbled Yellowfly, as he fished in his belt pouch for his lockpicks. This is probably a simple lock. I'll have it open in a minute. No problem. 
Yellowfly may be a member of the Thieves' Guild, but he is not of the Thief class. He does not have a lockpicking skill. All the same, he can try. I'll give him a 5% chance of success. Who knows, maybe he'll be fortunate without Sean A there to spoil his luck. I'm using a new set of purple dice for this roll. Here we go. Uh, 56 is not going to do it. After several minutes with his companion becoming more and more agitated, he gives up and returns his lockpicks to his pouch. He's just turning back to give Tamlin the obvious news when a very loud sound comes from above. The ringing of a bell pierced the silence. It was coming from the roof. In seconds, new sounds were added. Men yelling, boots stomping. Then more, louder bells started clanging away. These ones from the floors below. Good girl, Shawnee, said Yellowfly, grinning. Quick, Tam, follow me. I've got an idea. The two men flattened themselves against the wall that opened to the spiral staircase, just as three guards, coming from the roof, came stomping down and yelling. Once they had passed, the two rogues slipped inside and took the stairs up to the top. I previously mentioned that Shawnee and Phelan's success would be important, and that if they failed, Yellowfly's and Tamlin's job would become that much harder. Well, her sacrifice has provided a second chance for them to succeed. There's just one roll I need to make before I go back to the narrative. I'm wondering if there's a small chance that one guard would have remained atop the tower to act as lookout. It's not likely, but it's certainly possible. I'll do a wandering monster check to find out. A 1 on a 1d6 means someone remained above. The roll. A 3 means the rooftop has been completely abandoned. Yellowfly's head popped gopher-like from the trapdoor entrance to the tower's rooftop. Seeing nobody there, he emerged with Tamlin right behind him. It's clear, he said unnecessarily. They walked to the battlements. From the tower top, and given that the building was already on a hillside, the two men could see much of Silmoral laid beneath them like a map. Tamlin had never before beheld such a view, and after staring in wonderment for a moment, immediately started looking for the bakery in the Warrens where he and his companions had their apartments. Yellowfly was more intent on the action to the southeast. About a dozen guards were rushing there in a group, looking quite small from this vantage. The ribbon of smoke from Shawnee's handiwork was a black beacon in the distance. He moved to where he judged the window to the captain's office might be, and, peering down between two crenellations, found what he was looking for. Take off your tabard. Right away, Tamlin understood what Yellowfly was about to do and obeyed. He rolled the tabard into a makeshift rope and handed one end to his leader. Just keep watch for me, and then once I'm inside, put this back on and go meet me at the door. Oh, and don't let it go. With that, he slipped over the side and started rappelling a short distance down the outer surface of the tower. He didn't need to go far at all, though he had to swing a little to make it to the windowsill, since the tower top protruded from the main cylinder of the building by about a foot. All the same, without too much difficulty, Yellowfly was into the window, and Tamlin was putting his tabard back on. The whole thing took less than a minute. Getting into the office from the outside took guts, but I don't believe it's so dangerous a maneuver that it warrants a roll. Characters use ropes all the time in D&D without needing a check. I do need to make a check to see if he was spotted, however. There's one guard, the same guard they passed before, in fact, who remained on duty at the main door. Would he look up? Unlikely. Unless... He might look up if he saw other people doing so, or pointing, as they would if they saw one of the tower guards climbing over the edge. What's the chance of that happening, though? 
It's broad daylight, but would anybody be looking there, especially after all the bells had stopped? The spectacle would be the guards all heading toward the cobbles in the opposite direction. I think it's not likely. A one in three chance sounds about right, so uh, one or two on a d6 it will be. Here's the roll. <laughs> a one, of course. My character simply cannot get a break. Here's what happens. A little boy is walking with his mother. He drops the apple he was holding, and when he scrambles after it, he looks up and sees one of the guards hanging from the battlement. When he points up, the door guard notices and follows his gaze, where he sees the bottom of Yellowfly's boots suspended 40 feet above him. Yellowfly is not aware that he's been spotted. He isn't fond of heights and is less fond of dangling from them, so he doesn't look down. Also, years of illegal entry has taught him one rule above all. Never look around conspicuously. If you look like you know what you're doing, most folks will assume that you do. So, Yellowfly is unaware, but Tamlin might have seen the boy look up and point. I'll roll against his wisdom score of 16 to make a perception check. Oof, a 16. That just barely makes it. He does notice, but not until Yellowfly is out of sight. It's too late to warn him. He decides to make a slight change in plan and rushes back down to the third floor. Yellowfly entered a room with one curved wall, the exterior wall, and three straight ones. It had three doors. One he knew would lead to the hallway. He could tell which one it was because it was adjacent to the curved wall, and also it had a lock. The other two probably led to storage rooms. The captain's office was immaculately clean. It was dominated by a tall bookshelf and a large table, both of dark stained oak. The bookshelf had a dozen or so volumes stacked on various shelves. There was also a silver goblet, which Yellowfly regretted he would have to leave here, and an assortment of wine bottles. The table's surface was dominated by a well-drawn map of the city, whose edges curled up in each corner. Several papers were neatly stacked off to one side, with a charcoal pencil resting atop them. When he checked, he saw that the papers contained mostly lists and statistics, written in shorthand and abbreviations. Yellowfly had no idea what any of it meant. The map itself was held down by tokens and paperweights. Most of these were painted miniature figures of men-at-arms, placed individually or in clusters here and there throughout the city. Other miniatures were of knights in armor or figures in robes. These ones were mainly concentrated in the uppermost part of Silmoral, where the palace could be found. Yellowfly scoffed at them under his breath. <laughs> what kind of grown man plays with dolls? In addition to the papers and figurines mentioned, there are three metal rings of iron atop the city map. These act as paperweights, but that is actually their secondary function. Their main purpose is to mark locales of special interest to the captain. I wonder if Yellowfly will notice them and realize this. I'll give him a perception check against his wisdom of 13 to find out. The roll. A six. He almost didn't notice, but as he scanned the map, one of the three metal rings acting as paperweights caught his eye. It was placed in the southeast corner of the map, Yellowfly did a double-take when he realized it was centered right over the Blue Heron Trading Company warehouse. He quickly glanced at the other two. One was an old temple to Sadal, located in Southgate. He frowned, not understanding. The third ring marked a location in Rosedale he did not know. Some kind of large residence, perhaps. Yellowfly committed these locations to memory and turned to the bookcase. He pulled out and inspected one of the books. A History of Kings, it was called. He put it back and selected another. The Quiet Life was its title. No, he thought, not this one. He reached for a thin volume on the top shelf, pulled it down, and grinned. This would do. It was a slim volume, only the width of his pinky. 
On the cover, burned into the leather, was the title, 20 short poems that are easy to remember. Its author was listed as Hamnet Rattlestaff. Yellowfly knew of Rattlestaff. He was a popular bard who specialized in body material. Captain Bellick did not strike Yellowfly as a lover of low comedy. He guessed most of these books were here for show and were essentially never removed from the shelf. He opened the book up to the middle, grasped all of the pages and carefully tore them out so that the remainder formed a paper U. He fished the medallion out of his pouch and tested it in the newly made secret pocket. It fit perfectly. He grinned again and replaced the book on the shelf with the contraband concealed between the covers. Chapter 8 Part 3 Day 2 Late Afternoon Old Menser the Drunk was knocked back to awareness when a woman wearing a sword darted past him, shoving him into the wall of the alley where he spent most of his time. She smelled strangely of smoke. As he watched her recede into the distance, he straightened himself and grumbled. Watch yourself next time, young. The words dried up in his mouth as Old Menser turned around. His eyes went wide, reflecting bright orange. The Blue Heron warehouse was ablaze, with a tongue of fire reaching toward the sky and a pillar of smoke tall enough to touch the clouds. The double doors to the building were wide open. Within, there was a translucent pall of white smoke mixed with angry flashes of muted crimson and yellow. This sight alone was almost enough to sober him up, but Old Menser dropped his cider jug and his jaw fell open when he saw a figure come out of that door like a phantom emerging from fog. It was a small man with wild hair and wild eyes. He was barely supporting the weight of another person who was wrapped in a blanket and held in his arms. Like something from a strange dream, the man emerged, staggering and coughing hard, and then carried his burden away. Thanks for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help to support it, there are a number of ways to do so. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks so much to the many of you who support the show. As always, I'd like to read out one of your kind reviews. This one is on Apple Podcasts and was posted by Johnny Dickfor, or maybe it's pronounced Dickfore. Johnny writes, Tale of the Manticore is my go-to D&D podcast. It's the perfect blend of old-school D&D and grimdark literature. The DM is fantastic at the pacing of his storytelling. The average runtime feels right, around a half hour, with the story progressing enough to be gratifying but always leaving you wanting more. I would also be doing the show a disservice if I didn't also mention how well the characters are fleshed out. Each one has their own distinct personality and voice that is developed in a way that feels organic and not forced. But the thing I appreciate the most is that Tale of the Manticore doesn't contain the filler that turns me off most other TTRPG podcasts. There hasn't been a bad episode yet, and I don't anticipate that changing. Thank you, Johnny. That was an extremely generous review, and I really appreciate it. I also really value editing in the podcasts I listen to, especially the actual plays. I'll always take a tightly packed 30 minutes over an unedited hour. I hope you're enjoying season two. I feel like the characters' various personalities are starting to really crystallize around now. For folks who'd like to get in touch with me, I'm on the usual socials, at Manticore Tale at Twitter and Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. You can also reach me by email. My address is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls.
Lies and Half-Truths is original genre fiction written and performed by me, A.P. Weber. It's adventure. Snarls, a blur of snapping fangs and bristled fur. He pointed the third fantasy. In the age of the immortal emperor Perennius Zet, when the gods of old slept indolent in their forgotten temples and the children of men emerged. Sci-fi. Red Ellis dropped some coins in the slot and put the receiver to his ear. Even a little existential horror noir. Still kicking and clawing and making constricted cries. Davies struggled for a long time. Lies and Half-Truths. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to apweber.com. That's A-P-W-E-B-E-R dot com. He spun around, catching a prodding spear in his mighty hands and thrusting its butt into the chest of the fishman.